You're listening to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Amir Tibon. The Israeli election is behind us. The U.S. midterm elections are right in front of us on Tuesday night. And today we'll be speaking about what just happened in Israel with the comeback of Benjamin Netanyahu and the possible formation of the most religious and extreme government in Israeli history, and what we can expect from the elections in the U.S. and the implications for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Joining us for this conversation, Haaretz correspondents Ellison Kaplan-Sommer and Ben Samuels, all the most important races and stories coming up next. So, Alison, we are almost one week after the Israeli election, and Benjamin Netanyahu, the big winner of that night, is now trying to put together his next government. Coalition negotiations between the different parties have started. What's the latest news on that front? Well, it's a fairly simple negotiation for Netanyahu as opposed to in uh, previous situations and previous uh, elections and governments. It's pretty clear who his coalition partners are. It's a relatively small number of parties. They are right wing. They are religious. This is going to be the most religious Orthodox uh, coalition uh, ever, I think, in Israeli history. And uh, there is some wrangling over what senior ministry positions are going to stay in his Likud party and which will be handed out to his coalition partners. All eyes are on the religious Zionism party. Um, the heads of those parties are interested in uh, security ministries, um, uh, defense and, uh, and the police uh, ministry, which is going to be controversial and people are going to worry about the international implications. And everyone is looking at the justice ministry because top on this government's agenda is going to be reforms in the justice realm, presumably to help both Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and a senior coalition partner, Shas, which is led by Minister Aryeh Derry, who has been convicted of crimes before to adjust legislation um, allowing and promoting uh, their positions of power. So, so you said several interesting things there. First of all, indeed, this is going to be the, I think, first government in the history of Israel where the religious parties have a majority of the seats in the governing coalition. And I think that's going to be an interesting change. I will say, you know, on the one hand, I think it's supposed to be easier because they are such a cohesive group. But I think that what you mentioned at the end, this fight over ministries, um, where Likud wants to keep, you know, the defense ministry, the justice ministry to itself, and some of the coalition partners want those exact same powers, that could prolong the process. I think in 2015, when Netanyahu also had a decisive victory on election night, it still took him something like 41 days, which is almost the maximum time allowed, to form a coalition. So we'll keep following and reporting on this on haaretz.com. Um, and Ben, turning to you, how is the Biden administration looking at this process and at the possibility that the far-right forces led by Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir will hold senior positions in the next government. You know, in a word, I would say Biden is approaching it cautiously. So if you look at the way the U.S. Jewish establishment has approached the results of the election, you know, they finally have addressed the fact that Itamar Ben-Gvir is going to be a part of the coalition, but they've also indicated that they're going to proceed with cooperation regardless because they don't want to do anything to sacrifice the relationship, so to speak. Biden is not necessarily taking that track. So there are very heavy ongoing internal discussions based on how to approach Itamar Ben-Gvir in particular and the government at large. So, you know, I think there is going to be a cooperation with Netanyahu. They understand that, you know, there are the 
inherent difficulties with their political differences, but with Ben-Gvir, you know, someone who has been convicted of crimes before and someone who just has such an ideology that is so out of sync with the Biden administration, it is going to be, you know, very interesting to see what tack they take moving forward. Edison, is there any real possibility, do you think, that instead of this religious far-right coalition Netanyahu at the end of the negotiations will find himself with a different constellation, perhaps some kind of a unity government with the more moderate centrist parties that are now in the opposition? I think if it wasn't for the factor of Netanyahu's trial and his legal situation, as well as Derry's situation, as I mentioned before, along with the fact that I think the religious parties are eager for some serious reforms in the uh, legal and judicial system in the balance of power, because, for example, they want laws that uh, will not require ultra-Orthodox to, uh, to serve in the army, which have been repeatedly struck down by the Supreme Court. If it weren't for all these factors, I think Benjamin Netanyahu, in his heart, would have liked to lead a more moderate coalition or moderated coalition, perhaps by putting Benny Gantz to his left. But I think this necessity of addressing his legal issues and the legal issues of his coalition partners means that he needs absolute foot soldiers in his coalition. He needs parties that he will not have to haggle with over these issues, over making dramatic reforms in the legal and legislative balances of power. And therefore, I don't think there's a question that he's going to be handing out any engraved invitations to Gantz's party or to Lapid's party, for example, um, to the center or to his left to join his government. I think he is going to stick with this full-on religious right-wing government that is going to help him pass the kind of legislation that he needs. Yeah, you know, I tend to agree with you. And I think um, this is one important difference for people around the world who are interested in Israel and care about Israel to, to understand and to internalize. Um, because you can look at the result of the election and say, okay, Bibi's back. I mean, he led Israel for 12 years. Then he was ousted by the government of change, led by Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid for 17 months. And now he's back in power. You know, business as usual. But uh, I do think it's going to be a different government this time because of the makeup of the coalition, because of how strong the religious uh, and the far-right parties are going to be and basically have more power than Likud. And I think one interesting question, though, is will this government, at the end of the day, bring the U.S.-Israel relationship to a different place? Maybe not immediately, but for example, with the Democratic Party. Ben, putting aside the Biden administration and their cautiousness, how do you think this is going to play out with Democrats in Washington, D.C.? Well, I think a lot of it at first depends on what ministry Itmar Ben-Gvir gets. You know, if he gets the public security ministry and he's responsible for overseeing what happens on the Temple Mount, you know, they aren't necessarily going to be able to take on a de facto boycott. And there does need to be a certain level of cooperation. But taking a step further back, you know, the Democratic Party has already been trending leftward toward matters relating to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And with the government of change, you know, that was almost sort of a life raft for the Democratic Party, where the center of gravity was able to just sort of remain a little bit more static than it had in years past under Netanyahu, who brought Israel further rightward. Now that he's back, and now that he has more of a right-wing government than we've seen in modern history, you know, that's only going to further expedite the process where the Democratic Party is probably 
going to be, if not moving further left, and they're going to remain where they are, and Israel's going to be moving further right, which only widens the gap in the differences between the Democratic Party and Israel. So we're going to talk more about that in a second, and also about the elections coming up in the U.S. and how they could impact the U.S.-Israel relationship. But Ellison, before we go there, I do want to ask you one more question about the impacts that this coalition could have internally in Israel. We're talking about foreign relations, the incredibly important relationship with the United States and the threat for Israel of losing bipartisan support as it trends more to the right. But this is also a government that is coming, if it will indeed be sworn in, and I believe the chances are extremely high at this point, but it will come also with a revolutionary agenda inside Israel. You mentioned the judicial issues. You know, the word reforms, I think, is a nice way to put it. I think it's basically going to be changing the balance of power between the authorities in Israel, weakening the judicial system, injuring it, and making the government much stronger. And also on issues of religion and state, we could see a very different dynamic in Israel a few months from now. Yes, absolutely. And in Haaretz, um, my colleague Judy Baltz uh, laid out some of the changes that are going to be likely happening under this new coalition in the areas of religion and state. Um, any kind of reforms that uh, that went through or changes, liberalizations uh, in the change government over the past year, for example, in the area of Kashrut, one can imagine those being rolled back. There's been talk from some of the more homophobic, ultra-Orthodox elements of this potential future government that they want to cancel a ban on conversion therapy uh, in the area of homosexuality. And in the area of uh, women's rights, uh, people are extremely concerned. Uh, there's going to be a huge contrast between the government we've had over the past year in which there were 30 female members of Knesset in the governing coalition. And in this new, presumably future coalition, there are going to be nine. It's going to drop from 30 to nine uh, women with the ultra-Orthodox parties having no female representation and the uh, Likud and the religious Zionism having minimal female representation. Um, there was some reforms in the health ministry making the process of getting an abortion easier, eliminating this need to sit in front of a committee if you want to uh, to get a legal abortion. And uh, many women's groups are fe fearing that that um, that step, which was a step by the health minister, which wasn't legislative, can be reversed, particularly if there is a orthodox or ultra-orthodox ministry of health in this new government. So uh, people are worried about a real social, conservative, religious uh, revolution happening in the government. And then obviously there's the issue of the resumption of very high level of funding to ultra-Orthodox uh, educational institutions without requiring that they offer basic core educational elements like English and mathematics in exchange for that government funding. And it's important to remind the listeners that unlike the U.S. and some other countries, Israel does not have a constitution that creates any level of separation between religion and state. So this change of government could be meaningful on that front. Ben, how is this viewed in the American Jewish community these days? And I know American Jews also have their own long list of concerns, anti-Semitism and the upcoming midterm elections and other issues that are happening in America. Um, but has there been a realization of what this new government means for Israel and for the ties with diaspora Jewry? You know, it's complicated in short. You know, I think it's interesting because the U.S. Jewish establishment, you know, no matter what, they are going to defend Israel. They're going to support Israel. They're going to advocate for 
unshakable, unbreakable ties between the U.S. government and the Israeli government, no matter what party is in control in America or in Israel. That being said, you know, the U.S. Jewish establishment has spoken out against far-right extremism within Israel in the past, and they've been very reluctant to do that up until now, until after the results of the election made it clear that despite their, you know, them biting their tongues collectively, that the results of the election undeniably proved that this is what a very large portion of the population in Israel supports. So it puts them in a very difficult position where they have to advocate for, you know, no matter what, we are going to support Israel, but we're also going to call out this extremism that doesn't jive with how we view how the world should operate at the same time. So, you know, I think it's kind of a moving target for the U.S. Jewish establishment, but I think no matter what, they are always going to prioritize supporting Israel ahead of speaking out against Israel. So for Benjamin Netanyahu, he's uh, trying to put together the most right-wing and most religious coalition in Israeli history. It's probably going to cause damage to the relationship with the Democratic Party. It's probably going to cause more tensions and disappointment with American Jews. But luckily for him, Ben, on Wednesday morning, it's very likely he wakes up to a Republican Congress. Indeed. I mean, more likely a House than a Senate, a Senate to be determined, but at the very least, it is going to be much more of a right-wing government than it was you know, 24 hours before. What are we looking at right now when we talk about uh, the situation in Congress regarding Israel? Let's start first with the House of Representatives because we are on much uh, safer territory there when we talk about the expected changes. You know, I think the most interesting thing about the House race is, at least from an Israeli perspective, you know, this is taking out how anti-Semitism has defined much of the elections broadly throughout the country. But in terms of the House, you know, some of the most vulnerable Democrats are the most ardent supporters of Israel within the Democratic Party. So if you look at Elaine Luria and Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, or Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, or Susan Wilde in Pennsylvania, you know, these are some of the most national security oriented Democrats that are the most in danger of losing their seat. I would also add Josh Gottheimer in New Jersey and Tom Malinowski in New Jersey to that to Democrats that are in very vulnerable positions. So on one hand, you know, of course, the Republican Party, which is much more prone to blanket support of Israel, will be gaining power. But at the cost of that, you're removing a giant, significant bulwark of support for Israel within the Democratic Party. And, and then you're basically left with a party where the squad and the more critical elements of Israel are a larger share of the party's representatives in Washington, D.C. And not only that, but there are also going to be further progressive members of Congress that could be coming in. And if you look at what's happening in Pennsylvania, you know, APAC Super PAC, the United Democracy Project, has made their first ever spend on a Democrat versus Republican race and what was assumed to be a safe Democratic seat. But they've already put in over a million dollars aimed at defeating the Democrat in favor of the Republican, which, you know, brings in a whole nother slew of questions about you know, what does it mean to be pro-Israel? And what does it mean to prioritize support of Israel ahead of supporting democracy or in terms of being in line with the majority of Jewish American voters who support democracy and they support abortion access and things like that. The Republican that some really is running against that APAC is effectively supporting because they're making such a strong effort to defeat Summer Lee, you know, this is a man who doesn't support gun control or doesn't support gun control restrictions. He supports a federal ban on abortion. And since he's running in Pennsylvania, it's very important to note that he has refused to cut ties or to condemn Doug Mastriano, 
the Republican who's running for governor, who's just been embroiled consistently in so many controversies related to anti-Semitism over the past six months. Ellison, you're also joining us from the U.S. now, and you're going to be there for the next few weeks um, and also follow some of these interesting races. What's the most interesting one you're looking at today? Well, everyone is very focused on the Pennsylvania race, but I think that the underdog in terms of races that really could be you know, headlines is happening in New York, where we could be looking at the first Jewish Republican governor of New York. And of course, we know that New York is informally the U.S. capital of, uh, of Jewish life in America. And on the front page of uh, Sunday's New York Times was a large article about Ron Lauder, the uh, American billionaire, philanthropist, and uh, political kingmaker, and how he has contributed to PACs um, over $11 million funding the campaign of Lee Zeldin, the pro-Trump uh, Republican congressman from Long Island, in his challenge to Kathy Hochul, who at the beginning of this race, everyone thought was a shoe-in to continue um, governing the state of New York. But it really looks like the polls are close now, and we could be looking at Lee Zeldin becoming governor of New York, who at least the New York Times is attributing um, support from another American Jewish billionaire, Ron Lauder, as being responsible for that change. And I think that's going to be a very, very significant development if it happens, if Zeldin manages to pull that out and becomes governor of, uh, of New York State. Yeah, and I think that would be quite a political shock. It would, absolutely. Uh, an earthquake, in fact. And, and I have to say, Ben, you've written a lot about, uh, I think, almost every interesting state <laughs> where there is uh, an election this uh, year that is relevant to Israel or to the Jewish community. And on Tuesday night, as the results begin to come in, what are going to be the most important races you're going to be looking at from the point of view, again, of uh, what is interesting for Haaretz readers and listeners? These three races are really going to be the ones that determine whether Republicans manage to take back both houses of Congress or not. So Nevada... There's Catherine Cortez Masta, the Democratic incumbent, against Adam Laxalt, the Republican. Then in Georgia, it's the Democratic incumbent, Raphael Warnock, against Herschel Walker. And then in Pennsylvania, it's John Fetterman against Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz. And, you know, I think each of these races obviously have their own unique circumstances and their own local considerations that you have to take into account. But on the other hand, they all fit a similar national trend where it is, you know, Republicans that are if not directly implicated in far-right extremism and dabble in support from white nationalism, then they are only one or two degrees removed from that. So a lot of these races, you know, the Republicans say you can't accuse us of anti-Semitism or you can't accuse us of fostering anti-Semitism because we support Israel. And that's really kind of become part and parcel with the message of the Republican Party as it moves further to the right, because they try, they have been consistently attempting to say, we can't be accused of anti-Semitism because look how much more supportive we are for Israel than the Democrats. And that definitely creates a false binary. And it definitely, you know, kind of misses the point of the whole debate around anti-Semitism. So regarding the Senate, I would say those three races and then the House, you know, there are just too many to count. Uh, I do think, you know, some of the places you mentioned earlier are going to be called early, like, you know, Lynn Luria uh, in Virginia. And I think that's going to give us a bit of an indication of how large the Republican victory is going to be. Absolutely. And those are, you know, real traditionally competitive districts. And, you know, everyone is expecting a Republican wave, so to speak. And, you know, I think if 
those results come in and they are heavily Republican and the Democratic incumbents who are much more toward the center and much more national security oriented lose, then that only pretends more negative things to come for Democrats who may not be as close to the center. And a much more difficult life for American Jews who tend to live in that centrist position. And, you know, the the more and more partisan things are looking, the more right that the Republican Party is moving, the more left that the Democratic uh, Party is moving. This, you know, the place where the center of American Jewish support for Israel um, behind general American political support for Israel in that bipartisan center is eroding. And I think we're going to see the American Jewish community kind of dividing as the uh, American political landscape divides. I think it's going to be very much of a, you know, orthodox to non-orthodox um, uh, a split in uh, in the way that Amer- the American Jewish life looks. There's always been a divide, but I just think it's going to be intensified if this uh, part partisan uh, atmosphere continues as it looks like it will. So to that end, you know, I think it's also important to note that Jewish American voters are not motivated by Israel when they come out to the polls. You know, if you look at every survey consistently from the past you know, decade or so, Israel is barely within the top 10 of issues that motivate them. And this year in particular, you know, voters are motivated by defending democracy and reproductive rights. So like Allison said, as Israel becomes more and more centralized as an issue, the more and more that's going to create a divide when it comes to Israel. I think the nightmare scenario for, let's say, uh, the Israel's current ambassador to Washington, D.C., Mike Herzog, not that I've heard anything like this from him, but if I'm trying to put myself in his shoes, is a situation where you have this very right-wing government in Israel. Republicans take over Congress, but Democrats... Uh, maybe keep the Senate, or maybe the Senate, it's a very close margin, um, and they keep, you know, some of the key governorships, they're not wiped out on Tuesday. And you have this situation where it's a more extreme Republican Party versus a more extreme Democratic Party. And Israel is, under this government, very aligned with the Republicans. And there you have the bipartisan, you know, glue really tearing apart. And the cherry on the top of this uh, this ice cream sundae presumably is going to be on the heels of the uh, midterms and everyone's expecting a 2024 announcement by uh, former President uh, Donald Trump to come right after uh, after it. So if you know things don't heat up enough in the face of those expected midterm results, they will definitely heat up when, uh, when Trump announces. Although, you know, when it comes to Trump and Netanyahu, I don't know where that relationship stands anymore. I mean, we all remember Barack Ravid's uh, story last year. I'm not going to repeat the words Trump used uh, regarding Netanyahu because this is a family-friendly podcast. Um, <laughs> but Ben, you know, this does connect, I think, to the issue of anti-Semitism uh, that we did see uh, rise in this election and come from a lot of candidates. Uh, I think on the more on the Republican side, definitely this time. And Israel has not really dealt with this at all so far, but. At one point, it does. I think it will become uh, a very serious concern as well. So yeah, I mean, you can only count on you know this sort of support for Israel as being a shield against alleged anti-Semitism for so long before push comes to shove and before you know that sort of leeway that abides you runs out. And the fact that you know so many of these Republicans not only are directly implicated in trafficking and anti-Semitism, but are so closely aligned to Gab, the social network platform that, you know, the shooter behind the Pittsburgh synagogue attack in 2018 basically 
basically indicated that he was going to commit that attack and that has remained a platform for right-wing extremism for so long you know how i just i find it very difficult for the israeli government to believe that they can sort of maintain such close ties to republicans that fly in the face against the vast majority of the jewish american community so much and that puts the jewish american community in explicit danger for so long at a certain point push has to come to shove Well, we'll definitely have an interesting conversation about this after the results. And uh, we might not know about the Senate until Wednesday or even later, correct, Ben? It depends. You know, if, they're, if the Republicans do a lot better than anticipated and they don't need Georgia to reclaim a majority, then, you know, maybe we'll know by Wednesday. If not, then, you know, to be seen. But I think no matter what, people are anticipating a massive Republican victory on Tuesday. Whether that means they're going to take back both houses of Congress remains to be seen, but we'll definitely know if it's a good night for Republicans or a very good night for Republicans on Wednesday. Although we never know what to expect, right? It can go either way because in Israel, we were just expecting after these elections that they would be so close that we would be waiting days and days and days to find out who would be uh, forming the coalition and wrangling back and forth. And it became clearer much faster than we expected that uh, that Netanyahu had made a clear victory and was going to get more than 61 seats and uh, and have a majority. You know, Amir, you mentioned the some of the bad blood or we weren't sure what the relationship would be between uh, Trump and Netanyahu. One would have to imagine that uh, no matter how uh, Trump feels about Netanyahu personally, he had to have been a little bit inspired by, uh, by Netanyahu's comeback. Uh, yeah, I think that does make sense. And uh, maybe it will give him the final push to announce. Uh, but, you know, Ben, there is this theory that we hear every time a president loses uh, a midterm election that now the president can only focus on foreign policy because their domestic agenda is stuck within the opposition party ruling Congress. Are we going to see a renewed Biden peace initiative after Wednesday? I highly doubt it. Yeah. I mean, listen, the Biden administration has spent the past year and a half trying to keep the Bennett and after the Bennett, the Lapid government afloat and to really not put them in a position to alienate them and to really kind of play up every single victory and also to sort of take the flag for every single step backward. And the administration has really sort of indicated that the situation on the ground is not right for Biden. actual peace initiatives especially with the past you know deterioration of the status quo in the West Bank over the past several months with Netanyahu in government you know I think and with 2024 looming I think the Biden administration is going to be very hyper aware of a very delicate position they're going to be in where they have an assumed Republican majority that is just waiting to hammer them on every single thing related to Israel and waiting to make this into the key campaign issue to you know for lack of a better way way of phrasing it to, to take Jewish swing votes in very important states. And on the other hand, he's dealing with a Democratic Party that we talked about is shifting further leftward because Israel shifting further rightward. So Biden's going to be in a very delicate position domestically when it comes to Israel. And then he's just not going to see the situation on the ground that leads to any sort of forward momentum in terms of actual final status negotiations, let alone the making sure the situation doesn't deteriorate further. Amir, I'm going to turn the question around on you because you're our old diplomatic hand, but um, there's also going to be a lot of issues involving uh, Iran and Ukraine under the Netanyahu government. It's going to be a different dynamic, right, between the, the White House and uh, Netanyahu governing coalition when it comes to those two very delicate international diplomatic issues. 
Yeah, I think that's very true, Alison. And it's going to put Netanyahu in uh, an interesting position because Netanyahu, during his previous 12 years in power, always did his very best to avoid antagonizing Vladimir Putin. He had momentous fights with Barack Obama, and he even got into a few skirmishes with Donald Trump, but he never, ever had any kind of a public confrontation with Putin. Uh, now Putin and Iran are clearly more than ever on the same side. They were friends and allies before as well. But now Iran is basically supplying Putin with the weapons to murder Ukrainians. And the world is seeing this and uh, turning to some degree against Iran. I think it will be very difficult for uh, Western countries to negotiate with the Iranians right now as long as they are supporting Putin's war in Ukraine. Will Netanyahu join the Western world and do what his predecessors um, were hesitant to do in giving more support to Ukraine? Or will he continue his own policy over the years of being very cautious and very respectful of Vladimir Putin? And uh, we know that uh, after Putin attacked Ukraine in 2014, Netanyahu started this Israeli policy of neutrality and Bennett and Lapid basically continued it through the war that we've been experiencing this year. Uh, it will be a great challenge for Netanyahu and it will also impact his relationship with Biden and perhaps even with Republicans in Congress. Uh, this is going to be a big, interesting question for everyone to follow. Friends, I really want to thank you both for joining us and uh, I invite our listeners to keep following Ben and Ellison's great reporting and analysis on American and Israeli politics on Haaretz.com. Any last predictions? Well, uh, we know, I think, from our Israeli elections um, how um, how worthwhile our, uh, our predictions True. can be uh, of the future. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, if there is a, a presumed uh, Republican uh, victory in these midterms, as people are expecting, and following the uh, results of the Israeli elections, it's going to be a little bit uh, back to the future. I think we're going to see kind of a, a repeat uh, scenario of the uh, Trump-Netanyahu dynamic, at least as far as Congress is concerned, right? Right, the congressional and, and and the Senate, and um, and it's going to be a struggle for uh, for the White House to uh, to figure out how to manage uh, that dynamic. All right, guys, a pleasure speaking to both of you. Um, and again, great coverage coming up. Also from Ben and Ellison, follow us Tuesday, Wednesday, and after that to understand what happened and what the implications are for Israel. And that's it for today's episode. Uh, great thanks to Avri Rosentsvi and to Shania Viram, our editor and producer for this episode. We will be back again next week. And until then, Shalom from Tel Aviv.